This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome to episode 46 of the No Stroke Podcast. I'm Dave Dancero. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Garrow. Good evening, Mike. Yeah, uh, you back and settled in. You had, you, had, you know, trip out yeah. out to Texas uh, last week, and you're back to work here. And and yeah, I think it's you know definitely a bit more time to reflect. I do want to touch on the fact, you know, in the intro last week, you know, we kind of spoke to uh, that survivor caregiver voice not being part of uh, ISC, but you know that was before we had a brilliant speech from Senator Leon, and he. You know, he really spoke from the heart. You know, I, I think it was a, a great message he shared. And it often takes, you know, that lived experiences to see the gaps, right? Um, You know, yep. so for a for someone in his position, obviously, as a senator, uh, you know, there's other people, you know, obviously, John Fetterman as well, who went through a similar experience. You know, there's, there's starting to become more of a discussion around, you know, stroke and the gaps in care. You know, he specifically spoke to you know, the disconnect of life after stroke and, you know, access to, to resources. Um, and, you know, kind of blatantly said, you know, it shouldn't matter where, you know, in the country that you had your stroke, no matter where you're, you know, no matter what your zip code is, you know, why can't you get that access? So, um, you know, for those who, who were at ISC and kind of, or those not, you know, I did, I just want to clarify the fact that, you know, the American Stroke Association did make sure, you know, that voice is represented and, um, you know, we're, we're actually in, in discussions with the senator's legal team to, uh, to hopefully Perfect. have him on the podcast here. Yeah. So Mike, I'll just feed up that. Cause, uh, you, you, you're right. You, uh, you, we actually recorded the opening when you were wrapping up, you had one more morning, which is when you sat in on that session and including our, our, our guests who will be coming on and we'll, well, we'll do that intro shortly, but to just to feed off your point about the survivor experience, um, I actually just got, took a, a, a phone call, um, from a stroke survivor who I wasn't even aware, um, I had them about a year and a half ago, um, getting over some, or giving, getting them some access to some equipment when things were shutting down so they could continue their, their home therapy. But, um, they had tuned in to the last episode, um, with David Petrino and, um, they were, what really resonated was a comment that you had made about, um, you used your, your future mother-in-law as an example, um, in terms of adapting to technology and being able to get access to some of the services. Now, this person who will go unmentioned really had quite a bit to say, but he said, you know, what you guys are doing is so important. He said, but I don't know how we're going to solve, you know, and he used his own case and point. And he said, I'm at a point where, and this gentleman had has some issues with aphasia and he's working through, you know, the, the top things that were priority were for him to get in and out of his house initially, then to continue to have some continued rehab at home. But now he's at a stage where he's returned to driving. And he, he mentioned that he hears in the news, like the case of Senator Fetterman, who has been very vocal about he hasn't hidden that he has some language processing issues going on, and he has the equipment to be able to adapt and be able to continue to do his job. He said, you know, many of us just don't, we, we 
we need that. We need something. He needs something to go back to his, his job. And he just, that's the barrier that is stopping him from being able to go to the next level and want to, he wants to return to work. So it was just, it came at a time where, you know, it, it was a, you know, it was busy week getting, getting, um, getting things, um, you know, squared away on the home front here and everything. And then to hear that, it was nice to get feedback because, you know, we, we do this before and after hours. And a lot of times we not, you know, it's nice to get listener feedback, especially when, you know, like I mentioned this, this particular person, I wasn't even, um, I didn't even know they were listening to our show. So we always welcome that. Um, and it also comes in a time when, um, I'll be honest with you, you know, I got some, I was encouraged to, um, I don't know if you saw it, but I was encouraged by some faculty down at State University to put in for a, a TED Talk. Um, and I actually, you know, put my name in. Unfortunately, this morning found out that I didn't make the cut on that. So, um, you know, it, 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 <laughs> it was um, a little bit um, of a kind of a, uh, a little bit of a gut punch, but just you know it 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 goes to kind of what we talk about a little bit at the end of this episode about stroke isn't sexy right i think you even alluded to in the in the conversation that you know you can't make stroke sexy but you can advocate for life after and it has to be more and bigger than individual survivor and caregiver efforts we we you know we've we've put a lot of these pieces connecting but when you hear a survivor say, how can I get access to that? I don't have an answer. It's hard. It is. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, part of what we're doing is, you know, trying to represent this, you know, the voice of, you know, survivors, caregivers all around the country and the world, really, who, who experience these issues, um, you know, and it's a very hard problem to solve. So, you know, it's not going to be changed overnight, but, you know, that, you know, that type of feedback really does help, you know, to our cause, you know, and, and what we're trying to do, because ultimately, you know, we do, we have, you know, created a great network where, you know, we can connect folks and we can kind of be that support, um, you know, and we've, you know, like we're fortunate to attend ISC and, you know, again, not many caregiver survivors are in presence, but being able to kind of know, you know, who, who folks like, you know, the gentleman who reached out, uh, who's a listener, you know, who might be able to support, you know, and there's, there's services out there, but I think that's the issue of, you know, so many things happening in silos right now where, mm -hmm. you know, it, we really need as a patient and survive, um, you know, caregiver community need to kind of come together as one to make our voices heard. So, you know, I know that's happening, you know, not only on the clinical front, you know, to advance research, really trying to come together and understand, you know, at a population level, you know, what needs to, to come together to be able to change. Um, that needs to happen at an advocacy level as well. You know, there's, there's brilliant groups all around the country, all around the world kind of supporting the same mission, but we need to be one voice um, to make this change. And, you know, that's, that's something I'm really looking forward to discussing with Senator Luhan, you know, when we have him on. Um, of what what needs to change what voices do we need to rally to to really yep. try to drive this and True. um yeah so let let's kind of you know transition let's you know get into this episode um you know I, we were fortunate to connect prior to isc um 
with Ava, Ava Mystery. Um, she's a neurologist from the University of Cincinnati. You know, her work really, as as a allude to in the our discussion today is kind of been focused within the research realm of, of blood pressure control. Um, she was awarded actually at ISC, the Robert e. Skewart um, New Investigator Award in Stroke. So really great accomplishment to Dr. Mystery and all the you know, she'll talk to some of the upcoming research that she has. Dr. Mystery, the team at um, University of Cincinnati Health, like they're they're on on a path and doing some great stuff. I don't know if you have anything else to to kind of mention before we get into this, but no, no, it's a, it's a great intro. Um, just uh, loved her magic wand. I I loved her idea around, um, and you'll hear her t- talk about a learning health platform, and maybe that is something that in terms of talking about accelerating care delivery while we're doing the research. Um, so that was, uh, that was in, in, in always appreciate when a group and, and someone, you know, that's in the field and doing great work on the clinical sides appreciates the work that we're doing on the advocacy side. So a lot of work to do, but this was a great interview and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Hi, Eva, and welcome to the No Stroke Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, before we get started, first off, you know, we were had the pleasure of being able to run into you at ISC, you know, seeing you on stage as well. So first, you know, just wanted to say congratulations um, on the Robert G. Shaker Award for New Investigator. It's quite the accomplishment. Thank you. No, it was great to run into you too. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we did. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll dive into, you know, the research that, you know, kind of got you on stage uh, at ISC on the Friday, but um, prior, before we jump into this, let's kind of backtrack and, you know, let the, let the audience kind of hear a little bit about your background and what's brought you to your current role at uh, University of Cincinnati. Yeah, I, um, so I grew up in India um, and I went to medical school there and um came to the United States in Houston for my residency at Houston Methodist Hospital and uh, fellowship at Cincinnati. And then I left for, for a couple three years at Vanderbilt. I was a faculty there and came back a little over a year and a half ago back to Cincinnati. Um, and, um, and that's how I'm here. Um, the reason why I'm in Cincinnati is because um, during my residency, I realized that I really enjoyed stroke research and especially acute stroke research and had some question. In fact, I built my blood pressure question inquiry starting in my residency, um, kind of built it up until this trial that you saw at ISC. Um, and so I wanted to continue that um, kind of involvement in, in acute stroke research. Um, and I've kind of branched out, as you know, in, in several other areas now. And um, and that kind of attracted me to Cincinnati and, and that's why I've say stayed. Um, why stroke and why stroke research is, I think it's kind of, you know, bits and pieces that you gather in your life kind of land you to a place and a lot of personal stories, a lot of um, people that I worked with and who inspired me um, here and there, all of that has played um, a big and small role in where I am and <clears throat> where I am is, is a great place. I truly enjoy what I do, so. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your why. And thank you for joining us today. I know, you know, just getting back from trip the first week back after conference is always a, a, a juggle trying to get back into the system. So um, before we get into your, your 
research and all the great work you're doing. Can you, uh, for our audience, is there, you know, what, what, uh, what, what's something that uh, you might want to share about what you do when you're on your free time, if you have any? Um, I have free time, not so much mine though. I have two little ones. There are four and a half and two and a half. And my husband is a neurosurgeon. So we're, we're busy over here in mystery households. And whenever we have free time, we just love to, to spend with our kids and, um, and take them to places and do fun activities with them, which is, which is not, not kind of the fun piece, but, but, but it matters to us. So, yeah. And are you grooming? new neurologists for 2050 you know they both have their own personalities and then we'll let them do whatever excites them and whatever they're good at and and they're they're too young but uh but 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 they're they're their own people so yeah we'll see what happens we just want them Beautiful to be response <laughs> very nice um hopefully they like you know the cold of cincinnati then but you know it that's you That's know, what they, they wear get? shorts outside in December and January. So they're, they're Midwesterners. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a thing <laughs> yeah. for sure. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, you, um, Cincinnati and, you know, UC Health has, you know, kind of gotten a lot of attention lately, um, you know, not to, you know, say it's a good thing, right? Whenever someone ends up in the hospital, usually not for a, a positive reason, um, but you know, gentleman, DeMar Hamlin, NFL player, you know, he was treated at UC Health recently, um, you know, and it, it must mean a lot, you know, as a as an organization, you know, to get, you know, get the attention, but, you know, for you and your colleagues um, to have that, you know, the ability to kind of show your work and have some of this get highlighted. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to stroke, you know, there's, there's not too many kind of patient stories and, you know, that, that, you know, the care team really getting recognized for, for such the amazing work that you do. Um, but I do know you've been selected. You're kind of one of the first health systems in the region to receive the joint commission certification for comprehensive stroke center. Um, and one of the th reasons, you know, as you know, you've grown and obviously, you know, your ability to you know, manage or get with the guidelines and have great statistics of door to needle time and kind of that acute treatment, um, one thing that I saw as I was doing a bit of research is that you have one of the region's first mobile stroke units. Um, and we just spoke with Jeffrey Donnan and Stephen Davis from Australia who are taking imaging and putting it into um, airplanes across rural rural Australia. Um, but I'd, I'd love for you to speak to you know the success of the mobile stroke unit you know in the Cincinnati region and and maybe discuss like, are there barriers with this as well, right? So obviously success is you're able to get people to the hospital quicker. Um, but I'd, I'd love to just hear, you know, what that program has looked like since it's been implemented. Yeah, um, mobile stroke unit is, is, I would call it one of the latest victories of our stroke team. As you know, we have a long history of victories at, at UC. We were the first ones um, and enrolled the highest number of patients in the original TPA trials in an INDS in 1990s, um, and it all started there. So, so we're very proud of, of, of doing historic stuff, and I, I would say MSU has been one of, one of the latest ones here. It's definitely been a very successful program. Chris Richards, who is an emergency medicine physician, directs the program, and 
um, and you've seen stories of, of dramatic recovery in young patients um, when they, they get treated within that golden hour of that what very, very early hour of their stroke onset, which is what the purpose of the stroke unit is. And so, so we're very proud of the work that the doctors and nurses and the staff that does in the mobile stroke unit. One really good part about our stroke unit recently is that we are actually able to do research studies in stroke unit as well. So one of the most recent examples is our uh, team and as national PIS Joe Broderick for this um, study called FASTES. It's an NIH funded study on intracerebral hemorrhage, so bleeding kind of strokes. Um, and it's giving a medication to stop the bleeding uh, from expanding. Um, and, and it has to happen within two hours of the onset. So it's very early. And so we're able to use mobile stroke unit for those kinds of ultra early stroke studies, which is, which is really great. And if it works, then, then it might be kind of just be, be, be changing the, how, we, how we treat uh, you know, bleeding kinds of strokes and things like that. So, so definitely great successes there. Lots of work to do still because it's new, but, um, but we'll, we'll have some good statistical data on what, what the you know, exact impact in terms of minutes and, and, and disability save that we're making. We're, we're still kind of new, so. Yeah. Well, it's you know great to hear you know the abilities you know to advance research right because that's you know as we'll we'll get into it with some of your upcoming research you know there's often so many barriers for stroke patients to get enrolled in some of this research, um you know and and you know technology and you know services like a mobile stroke unit could only help so fascinating to hear um uh, you know just one side note on the mobile stroke units like you know it's interesting when you think about you know, the, we often say for stroke, for a patient, you know, a stroke is a stroke, no matter where you have it. Right. But what matters about where you have it is that care delivery, right. Both from the acute phase all the way through post, uh, post rehab. So, you know, when we look at the makeup of these mobile stroke units, I'm here in New York city and Mount Sinai has a mobile stroke unit that again, for the Mount Sinai health system, which is great. But if I have a stroke and I pick up the phone and I get tied into the, not to put down NYU Langone, but maybe they don't have a, a mobile stroke unit, right? Like how could we, it's often, you know, the hospital system who has this, right? Like, do you think there's a way that, you know, it could expand past, you know, just the the hospital system itself, and I'm sure it's like how the ambulance systems are set up and everything, but I guess like what's your take on how you could get more patients eligible, like get more of these, have a better chance of a survivor no matter where they are to get a, a mobile stroke unit at their house? Most of the hospital systems, the, the, the mobile stroke units are not really kind of tied to a hospital system, okay. although system has and by a law they have to allow patients to go whichever at whichever hospital system they choose to go to so for example UC stroke team um, mobile stroke unit will deliver patients to hospitals across the region depending on the patient preference and where they will be best served in terms of the time of transport and things like that so they definitely follow the EMS algorithms it is definitely not specific to a hospital system I have never lived in New York, so I can't speak for the city and how it, it operates, but 
um, but but um, but benefits of mobile stroke unit um, in terms of time saved are very region specific and geography specific. So, so that's definitely have to be kept in mind. And, and you're absolutely correct that the people who need it the most, the people who are rural and, and away from the cities who are not within the reach of this you know, city-based EMS services and, and thereby not eligible for mobile stroke units per se are the ones still kind of, you know, left out from that care. And we definitely have to work hard to make sure that we reach them. I think that the, the scanner in the airplane is a fantastic idea. I hope that we get there, maybe in the helicopters one day, I don't know. Um, but, but, but definitely community education patient and intervention there, recognition of symptoms, all of those things play um, a huge role um, in, in those settings. But, but I agree that, that we need to do better to reach those populations that are not yet reached by mobile stroke units per se. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's, um, let's, let's talk a little bit more. I really want you to put the spotlight on your research focus now. And can you talk about your uh, PCORI funded uh, it's multi-site. Tell us more about, um, you know, where that is. Maybe give us the the short notes on, um, you know, the design of the study and and just, um, um, you know, um, where what stage it's at right now. Definitely, we are very fortunate that Pakori um, chose to fund us because, in my biased opinion, it is a a very important study. Um, the study itself is simple. The question is fairly simple. Um, we want to understand if this endovascular stroke treatment that you probably already know by now that it's a pretty effective treatment for acute stroke. It's basically going in with a catheter and bringing the blood clot out, a large blood clot out from the brain that's causing a stroke. And it's changed the way how we practice stroke care and outcomes of our stroke patients drastically. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the way trials were done, um, and back in 2015 that were presented, um, excluded patients with any level of baseline disability from enrollment in the trials. And the way we uh, write guidelines across the globe is kind of just follow what the trials did because that's what we have evidence for and that's what the guidelines are for. They just kind of summarize and tell you what the evidence looks like. And so consequently, <clears throat> it made it into the guidelines that endovascular treatment is recommended by the highest class and level of evidence for patients who meet X number of criteria that's according to those, those trial inclusion exclusion criteria. And they specifically say that, that um, pre-stroke disability is one of those criteria as in um, patients who have a baseline modified rank and score of zero to one are eligible with, and zero to one means no disability are eligible for this treatment. And so what happens is clinicians kind of take that as a face value, as they should. These are really great guidances for clinical practice. And what happens is whenever at bedside, we talk about offering endovascular treatment to say somebody who's been wheelchair bound or when walking with a walker or has dementia um, and can't take care of themselves always involves but they have a pre-stroke disability and what are we kind of, you know, are we saving enough and is this the word resources worth it? And, and so our idea is to generate one of a kind prospective observational 12 center data um, on the comparative effectiveness. So we're not 
kind of randomly assigning patients to get therapy versus not. We're just kind of collecting data if they got therapy versus not in routine clinical care. And then collecting um, a lot of details about their baseline functioning, not just the modified Rankin score, but detailed granular data about what they were able to do, what their social life looked like, what was their family support, education level, um, you know, what was their exact impairment of functioning, where they, you know, had a knee replacement and had pain in their limb, or where they had a, having dementia and just couldn't communicate. What was the what was the reason why they landed at that MRS three? Um, and so we're collecting all of those data and then following these patients out to 90 days to collect how they did at 90 days, not just again in terms of MRS, but also very, very granular data about what their cognition looks like or what their quality of life looks like, things like that, to kind of just give the community a sense of if we are, you know, doing the right thing by offering treatment to these patients. And if if not, then what are some of the characteristics that determine that differential treatment effect? Um, but but and so so in that sense, the study design and the question is fairly simple. But overarching goal, which I hope we will be able to do, is with this data, we will be able to arm researchers in future to not reflexively say that because we're doing this novel stroke intervention study, we're going to exclude patients with disability from this, this randomized clinical trial, which is actually very common. In fact, we have seen that more than 80%, close to 90% of clinical trials in stroke, no matter if they're acute or prevention trials, exclude patients with a baseline disability from research. And so we create evidence gaps and clinical care gaps for these patients. So our, our overarching goal is that we will arm researcher with data that they can use hopefully to not reflexively say that we're gonna exclude patients with disabilities from all kinds of research because disability um, exclusion criteria has is, goes deeper than just having disability. Because if you think about who has disability in the United States, these are older individuals, these are women, these are minorities. And so, uh, so it creates health disparities without the researcher intending to do it. And so, so that's, the whole, that's the overarching goal. Yeah, and just when you think of one, predisposed risk of, of stroke, like the underlying conditions of what often brings a stroke patient through the doors is these factors that are currently not being studied, right? Um, do you have a sense of, you know, what percentage of stroke population right now would kind of fall within this predisposed risk? And Yeah, and so by some estimates, um, up to one third of our acute stroke population has a pre-existing disability that includes having a prior stroke um, and obviously all other kinds of uh, diseases and causes um, of disability. Um, so some estimates say about 15%, some say about 30%. So a fair number of patients. Interesting. And so what sites are, are you guys, obviously this at UC Health, what other health systems are you partnering with on this? Um, and they're, they're geographically kind of diverse, these sites. Um, and I might not be able to name all 12, but I'll try. So UC Health, we have UCLA, uh, Mount Sinai, University of Washington, Barrow at uh, Phoenix, West Virginia University, Vanderbilt, University of Miami, um, Columbia, 
Um, who else am I forgetting? I'm not counting if you are. Okay, I got nine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm clearly forgetting. That five. is quite diverse though. Okay. So yeah, that, yeah that's no, great it's, to it's hear. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and when we get back, we'll we'll dive into the research that you're presenting at ISC. Hey there, No Stroke listeners. Whether this is your first episode you've tuned into or you've been a loyal listener since episode one, Dave and I are super thankful you're choosing to spend some time with us today. A goal of ours this year is to learn more about our listeners. After today's show, head over to our new website, nostrokepod.com. That's K-N-O-W-S-T-R-O-K-E-P-O-D.com and choose an option in the drop-down titled, What's Your Connection to Stroke? If you have a topic or want to recommend a guest for the show, we've also made it easy for you to simply submit your feedback all on the new website. You could always reach out to David and I personally through our social channels or via email. And all those contact details, including the new link to the website, can be found in the show notes. Thank you. Now let's get back to today's show. All right, and welcome back. We are here with Eva Mystery. Um, so at the break, Eva, you remembered the, the other two centers, so I'll let you share now. I did. They were Hartford Health and Yale, so... Right. We have friends at both. So glad to hear that, you know, it multi-site and, you know, some really, really great, um, you know, pieces, piece of research that you're going to be doing that I think is going to help, you know, open the field down the road. So kudos to you. Um, and with this research and, you know, you've, you've recently, you know, this year just got awarded the new investigator award in stroke um, and you're on stage at ISC. I have to say you you had a tough follow. Um, the gentleman who presented before you, um, Senator Ben Ray Lujan, was, you know, we one the only survivor voice that that was shared at ISC. Um, you know, it, it was great to hear his story, super heartfelt, you know, motivating. And and you know, I think with his understanding of these gaps in care, um, especially post-stroke treatment. Um, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, his thoughts on that and kind of how he's, you know, rallying that voice and, and hopefully being able to drive some change. So um, while we'd love to hear more sur- stroke survivors and patient perspectives on stage at ISC, um, it was, you know, kudos to AHA for getting him and, and being able to share that story. I think it was heartfelt. Um, but let's let's talk about you, your recent award and the um, the study you presented um, looking at blood pressure after endovascular stroke treatment. So if you want to kind of tee that up, you know, what the what the aim of that study was um, and then some of the, the results that you presented on stage. Yes. So um, we discussed before that in 2015, um, we had these positive trials of endovascular stroke treatment, drastic treatment effects. If you look at the data, you find that about 50% of patients, even after receiving this therapy, remain disabled or die at 90 days. So even though it's very, very effective, we could still do better for these patients. And and, and since then, because of that reason, we have been on a quest to kind of see what else can we do, what else can we optimize to help move that needle a little bit more. And one of the things that we have um, uh, found that 
medical care or procedural care might affect outcomes specifically. We have a ton of observational evidence that shows that um, if you have higher blood pressure after this treatment, um, that that is associated with worse outcomes. Um, obviously this is observational evidence and we have done a very large study um, kind of as, as, um, as, a, as a dose finding study of this to understand if there's exact levels of blood pressure that can associate or dichotomize good versus bad outcomes. And, and we found that that number was around 158 or practically 160. Um, so if you had a single blood pressure value over 160 uh, within that first 24 hours after, after getting endovascular treatment, then you had higher chances of having worse outcomes at 90 days. Um, and with these findings, we wanted to kind of move them forward in an interventional randomized study to understand as a first step, um, if artificially lowering the blood pressure, giving the patients medications to keep their blood pressure below a certain level, not, not just what the brain does or the body does, but actually giving the medicines to, to help the blood pressure lo lower. Um, are we a harming these patients? Is this even safe to do? Um, and two, how promising is this strategy to move forward in a larger thousands of patients trial? Is this worth investing millions of dollars over? Um, and so that is the reason why we designed BEST2, which is a, what we call a phase two trial, which is an early phase trial, which is kind of understanding if your intervention is feasible, if is it safe, or is it worth moving forward? All of those kinds of questions are, are early phase trials. These are not pivotal trials, which definitely answer a question yes or no. So, so just a key difference there about the design. It's a phase two design trial. It is what we call a futility trial. And you may have caught that on the stage a little bit that um, it is by design, we set out to understand if moving the lower blood pressure targets as a strategy to improve patient outcomes is futile. And we define futile if A, we find evidence of harm, and B, if we find that there is a very low chance that a future trial, and we calculate it using trial simulations based on the data that we collect, um, based on the data that we collect on trial simulations, if we find that the chance of having a large trial positive is less than 25%, then we say that we don't move forward because it's probably not worth, you know, investing a millions of more dollars behind this. So, um, so in my biased opinion, it's a, it's a, it's a cool design in that way. Um, and we, um, as you know, enrolled 120 patients at three centers. Our intervention groups were standard blood pressure value high of less than equal to 180 and then two moderate blood pressure groups, less than 160 and less than 140. That, those were to be maintained for 24 hours after the intervention started using nicardipine as the first line agent, which is a uh, blood pressure medicine that's given as a continuous infusion through, through intravenous route. I, uh, I just had a quick follow-up question on that because when I was trying to understand, is the thought, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know that you could really target, so you're, you're targeting systolic blood pressure the top mm -hmm. um, is the thought that if you adjust too low does it have to do with perfusion what what is the what so what, what is what, what is the risk that's a great question two points there um in terms of the intervention itself our goal was to just target the high number so we our, our goal was to not let the blood pressure creep above 
the randomly assigned blood pressure target. We didn't target the lower number of the pressure, lower number of the blood pressure per se, except for we asked and protocolized that the blood pressure medicine be peeled off if the patient's blood pressure was reaching lower than the highest number of the next group that's below them. So, so that's just the, the key point um, over there. But yes, it all comes down to um, what we call cerebral autoregulation, which is the fancy term for the fact that brain has this beautiful property of maintaining its blood flow at a constant level over a large you know, range of systemic blood pressure. And so because brain is such a sensitive organ, even if your blood pressure goes down to 100 or over 200, in normal people like me and you, our brains auto-regulate the blood flow to the brain by constricting or dilating the blood vessels to a certain fixed milliliters per gram of brain tissue. Um, and that is called auto-regulation. Um, the thought is that if we artificially give the blood pressure lowering medicines, we are probably messing with this beautiful property that the brain has. And thereby, we're probably making the blood flow less than it should have been per the brain's own criteria. The brain says that you need this much. That's why we're increasing this blood pressure and, 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 and we're dilating or constricting these blood vessels. We're giving the blood pressure medication, lowering the systemic blood pressure, and we're just messing it all up. Um, and and the, the first kind of um, clue of messing it up is that you would have higher volumes or higher size of the stroke per se, which is what the brain was trying to save in the first place. You lower the blood pressure, you compromise the blood flow to the brain further, and, and, and you might have higher volumes of strokes. And so that's why it was one of our primary outcomes was the exact volume of stroke that the patients ended up having at 36 hours. We wanted to mechanistically understand if we're causing harm by lowering blood pressure and thereby increasing the volumes of stroke. You also, you know, were, were in attendance for the three days at the conference, um, you know, so I'd be curious, was there anything else, you know, the, you know, in your, in the three days that you were there from a trial perspective or, you know, new research coming out that kind of caught your eye that you'd like to share? Um, let me tell you about the couple of cool things that we presented um, that, that I think is, is great. And then also I was very I'm happy to see some of the other data in terms of what we are doing. We presented this session on the um, stroke net thrombectomy platform, um, which is a huge platform trial um, funded by the NIH and INDS conducted through the NIH stroke net. As you know, we're, uh, we're, we're very heavily involved in, in NIH stroke net over here at UC. And so we did a session on kind of um, educating the community about the various aspects of this very complex um, platform trial. Um, it is complex by design for a reason because it's extremely efficient. It's, um, you may have heard about the remap cap or active trials for COVID, for example, um, following very similar suit. And so, so we're excited about that. Um, the other thing we presented is our upcoming trial on a very um, novel, a very promising lytic drug that we uh, think might replace TPA or TNK in the next 10 years. And we're starting that trial um, later this year. We're expecting our notice of award. We're approved for funding by 
NIH um, and this drug is developed um, with NIH funding as well. So it's pretty cool, just like TNK and TPA, so RTPA, I should say. So, um, so we're um, we're very excited about that. In terms of other things, I thought that the span session was very interesting about neuroprotection and and uric acid uh, was great. Obviously, the large core trials, which was what I thought that you were talking about earlier, uh, hard hard suit to follow. I didn't realize that you were talking about the senator speech, which was definitely a very hard suit to follow. I don't know if people were listening to my talk at that point anyway, but um, but large core trials were very interesting. We have a ton to digest there in terms of how those trials apply to our practice and how things are going to change, hopefully um, for the for the better. But uh, but those were very interesting. Um, the the confirmation of TNK being not inferior to alteplase in the Chinese trial was interesting to me as well. We we knew it. We have switched to TNK in our region with was a nice cherry on the top. But yeah, some of those were my my favorite ones. Uh, that's what I was meant with the senators. Be it was I, I think people were tuned in. Don't worry. It was you had you have <laughs> had everybody's attention. Um, so yeah, th I think you know it's been. You know, fascinated to hear your work. Obviously, you know you've been in this field and you know really pushing the needle in a few few important areas for for research. Um, you know, with that in mind, you know, is there anything kind of late breaking, you know, out, out of UC Health that you have you know planned from a research perspective over the next you know year or two? Yeah, Obviously, the ongoing trials, but we always have a ton going on. So, you know, the Corey Grant, excited about that. The uh, the Novolytic Phase Two trial, we're very excited about that. Um, fastest, um, the ICH trial that we're leading here, um, excited about that as well. Um, we have a very nice um, biomarker study of identifying. Um, um, uh, biomarkers for stroke recovery. Uh, we're very excited about that. We do a ton of um, hemorrhagic stroke genetic epidemiology work, and hopefully we'll have a good therapeutic target from that work coming out in the next few years too. So lots of going on, lots to do still for our patients. And so, um, so hope to make an impact. Great. And are most of these studies, you know, from, at least from your center's point of view like are those all on site do you have any kind of remote trials or anything that folks could we, maybe learn about most of our studies are multi-center so okay. um uh, but, i mean we do have single center studies at our site but i didn't mention them they're very, fairly pilot and and yeah. the studies that i mentioned are large big multi-center right. studies yeah yeah that biomarker study that that's quite interesting mm -hmm. you know there's a few companies one that we spoke to that are that's trying to well you just saw i think in the news recently right before isc um they announced the fast ai which is like a you know smartphone app to try to mm -hmm. track you know face droop you know arm weakness things like yeah. that um yeah. there's a few wearable companies out there as well so yeah we'll have to get you back on sounds like there's some great research coming down the pipeline we're very excited about it. Cool. So I think with that, you know, we'll we'll kind of end here. Each each episode we do end with our their magic wand question. So the way that's designed is, you know, you have this magic wand that could go and really make any change that you'd like. Um, and, you know, be as creative, you know, with it as you'd like. 
but you know the question pertains to how would you take that magic wand to redesign the stroke care pathway um stroke care pathway and and when i'm assuming you mean stroke clinical care pathway not not the way we do stroke research because i have two different answers for that <laughs> fair um I, you could take it in the research angle okay well for research angle i think that the magic wand and i don't know this will ever happen is i would love to have a um, kind of a nationwide multi-center perpetual um, learning health platform where we do experiment embedded in the clinical care, obviously within the constraints of, of known therapeutics mm. um, and just have this perpetual system that learns on itself about what works in what system and what doesn't and also provide this ability to do randomized studies as a whole infrastructure that's embedded within the clinical care um, without, um, without adding the cost, research specific costs to do some of the things. And so um, just kind of making it cost and time efficient while constantly learning from it. So I, that would be my, my dream um, to do it, but I don't know if it will ever happen. That's the magic wand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah great answer driving and delivering outcomes and maybe saving some time in the process too. Fantastic. So this has been a great, um, it's been wonderful meeting you. I know Mike and I ran into you at conference briefly, um, but um, I can see, you know, why you received that uh, well-deserved award at conference of the new, the new investigator award in stroke by the ISC. So, um, is there anything you want to add in closing? If, I know we want to be aware of your time, but uh, we can put all your resources in the show links, but I'll give you the last word here before we wrap up. No, just thank you for, for having me and thank you for all the work that you do to kind of increase the awareness around the disease and, and cutting edge therapeutics. I know um, our patients are disadvantaged, like you said before, than cancer and that's kind of rings so true the population that gets affected by the disease is not, you know, kind of glamorous. And, and so it kind of doesn't get the limelight that it deserves. Our patients um, are not the ones that are going to have their family members researching heavily about the novel cutting edge things that are happening. The setting is very different. It's acute, you know, you don't, we don't have relationships with these patients. They don't have a relationship with us. They're seeing us for the first time in their life while they're suffering from this disabling symptom. So it's hard to do it as against cancer where you have a have existing trust and relationship with the clinician. So, so work like this is so important to kind of get that awareness out and, um, and trust builds honestly with the community. So, so we really appreciate that. Thank you. That, yeah. You know, that means a lot, you know, I think, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's, you know, stroke is so unexpected, but, you know, the work that's being done, you know, put the trust in, you know, amazing folks like you in the clinic and in the, these hospitals to take care of, you know, the acute phase. But, you know, I think it's, it's also a lot of work to be done there on the post end, right? Because you, you then are with them for life oftentimes. So, um, you know, thank you for the words, you know, it kind of helps support our mission what we're trying to do and 
you know maybe we could make stroke sexy or something you know yeah. make it you know because it's it's not it's the the black sheep of of care right now but a lot lot to be done so thank you for all yep. your work and you know coming on here to to share everything again sounds like some great stuff down the down the line for you so we'd love to have back up back on thank you thank you thanks Evan.